Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Education, education, education. A topic today as much as it has been for generations regarding the history and funding and the future of education in Kentucky. My guest today is William E. Bill Ellis, Professor Emeritus at Eastern Kentucky University and author of several books, including The Kentucky River, A History of Eastern Kentucky University, A History of Education in Kentucky. In 1999, he received the Governor's Award for his book, Robert Worth Bingham and the Southern Mystique, another interesting part of Kentucky uh, history. His latest book is Irvin S. Cobb, The Rise and Fall of an American Humorist. Paducah-born Irvin Cobb was one of the highest paid and most celebrated American journalists and humorists in America in the early 20th century. He also was renowned for his short stories. And according to uh, Dr. Ellis, who uh, was quoted uh, saying this in one of the the reviews he got for uh, the book, He was a party to the endemic racism of the time. However, through his works are uh, worthy of more detailed study because of his wide-ranging contributions to media culture and his coverage of some of the biggest stories of the day. His latest book, Irvin S. Cobb, and we'll talk about that. Bill Ellis, welcome to the microphone. Thank you. Glad to be here. Little bit about your background. You were um, you've been a teacher all your life. Uh, you ended up uh, at Eastern Kentucky University, but you did some teaching before that. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about? Uh, you just asked me where I'm from. That's uh, I'm always proud to tell people I'm from Barron County. Barron County. Uh, so where are you from? I'm from. Uh, I was born in Danville, in 1940, January 1st. Uh, grew up in Shelbyville, outside of Shelbyville. I tell people I'm really from Snow Hill, which was a a working class suburb. So I come from a working class family. I know how to weld and do a lot of things, uh, not necessarily what I did in the classroom. And I uh, went to Shelbyville High School, went to Georgetown College, played a little football, not very well, but uh, decided I wanted to be a teacher, history teacher, which uh, I've always be, been thankful that I could stay at that. I was also a football coach. You probably didn't know that, did no. you? Uh, for Where? For four years. One year at Harrisburg and three <laughs> at Shelby County. And I always tell people that one of the hallmarks of a good coach is to win 200 games in a lifetime. And I coached four years, and at the rate I was going, it was going to take me 100 years. So <laughs> I decided I better drop one of my vocations and concentrate on history. So I went to... Uh, uh, EKU, the first year they were a university and got a master's in history under some uh, very wonderful people and then uh, got a master's, went to Lee's Junior College in Jackson, taught there for three years and then got a chance to come to Eastern and uh, while I was working on my doctorate in history at UK and uh, had uh, Classes with some interesting people there. That was right after Tom Clark had left. And I did meet Tom later. And and Tom Clark was a a real mentor later in my life because I met him when he came to Eastern to teach for one year. And then we kept up contact. And and, uh, the book I did on a history of education in Kentucky is uh, 
due to him because he uh, recommended me to write that book. And, and it came after I, I did the book on Eastern. And, and uh, of course, um, most scholars um, and historians and educators look at the history of education in Kentucky as uh, a seminal work, certainly in your lifetime, but one that that I remember when it came out that uh, or uh, people always referred me to it, and we talked about it at the time um, uh, in a television interview. Yeah. Um, t- tell me about the uh, sort of the, the genesis of that. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, Tom Clark was influential uh, uh, on you writing the book, uh, the research that went into it, uh, w- the story that you found. I mean, you became at that time and maybe still are in, in uh, many, many circles uh, the education uh, expert uh, as far <laughs> well, as I wouldn't uh, say that. as far as history is yeah. concerned, because that that's the work that you did and and that you completed. So talk a little bit about yeah. the well, that I'd, book. I'd done the history of Eastern, and so I knew a lot about uh, Eastern's history. And if you study Eastern, you've got to study the other universities and colleges as well, and also where teach, uh, students came from and where teachers came from. And uh, uh, Steve Wren, who was at the University Press at that time, was talking with Tom one day. Tom was already in a nursing home, and, and uh, uh, so Steve said that Tom Clark recommended me to write the book, so I felt like it was a, almost like a commandment from on high, I've got mm. to do this. So I spent a lot of time on that book. Uh, I knew a lot about the colleges and the universities, and, and uh, there are a lot of... Uh, books written about the colleges, the universities, uh, and also about uh, uh, many levels of education. I haunted the uh, library at the University of Kentucky, the Education Library, because there were a lot of very good uh, master's theses and dissertations on education in Kentucky done in the, the College of Education. Uh, and I divided the book up into time segments and divided into uh, public school and private education, K through 12, and then decided to uh, uh, do it in time periods. And so uh, some people didn't like that, and and I had one reviewer say it was an old-fashioned education book, which is fine with me. It is an old-fashioned education book. The problem in Kentucky has always been and is still a matter of two problems. One is equity and one is equality. The equality, uh, of course, we know is for a long time Kentucky education was segregated. And we don't really start desegregating education until the mid-1950s. Berea College... And even later than that earlier, in some and school it, systems. And eventually it, had, it decided, a decision was made to, mm-hmm. to really stop uh, segregation at, or desegregation at that school. But it's always been that problem of uh, equity uh, and uh, or equality. Uh, the equality part of it is that for a long time women did not have equality with men in public and private education. Now, if you look at statistics, uh, American girls and women are surpassing men, uh, not only in the numbers who get through high school, but also in higher education and more and more in graduate education. And, and you look at uh, uh, the pictures in a, uh, of any graduate school and you'll see a lot of more women now than you will see mm-hmm. men, even in 
and, and such professions as medical school, dental schools, and law schools. So the equity uh, situation, the equality uh, is uh, changing. Equity refers to uh, the fact that some people have never gotten uh, really advantages in education. Uh, so that's uh, because we have poor school districts, we have poor counties. Uh, for a long time in Kentucky, if you lived in a city like Lexington or in Louisville or a uh, well-heeled town like Versailles, uh, your chances of getting a good public school education were, were much better than if you lived in a county, particularly in Appalachia. Uh, it's not until the early part of the 20th century that the legislature requires that there be a public high school in each county. That took a long time to develop, well into the 1920s and 30s. Well, you run into, of course, the Great Depression and uh, all the other situations in the economy that, that uh, depress that. And since World War II, things have improved, but now we see that uh, in many Kentucky counties, because of uh, the decline of the coal industry, particularly in eastern Kentucky, uh, school districts are hard pressed to pay salaries, to pay for all the, the things that are needed. The, the central Kentucky counties and Louisville and Lexington and, and northern Kentucky, those school districts are all doing a lot better than the poorer areas of Kentucky. So it's still a problem of, of uh, equity, of, of getting an equal education no matter where you are in the state. Uh, and it's been uh, uh, worsened in many ways because of uh, the way uh, society has changed. But it's, uh, it's a continuing problem and uh, I don't expect it'll, it'll ever end, but uh, we should be uh, thinking more and more about uh, better education for kids in poorer counties. They get some of that now through KET they can get programming and then uh, they can also, uh, there are correspondence courses or, or uh, courses through the internet that help, but uh, that'll continue to be a problem well into the future. Well, I'm we worried about uh, uh, charter schools. Charter schools, for all the things that people say about them, generally take better students. And uh, I have a daughter who is in education in Texas, and what she says is that in Texas, Charter schools are, are basically for better students and students that don't have any problems. And if a student has a, a problem, then if, they, if they're, they're in a charter school, they're, they're usually let go and they end up back in the public school system. Now that's just my daughter's opinion of what's going on in Texas. Well, you hear that a lot. That's, that's a general opinion. I think the, um, for the most part, uh, charter schools, uh, even though they've been around a long time, are still, it's difficult to define exactly what kind of charter school. The argument that you always hear is that they take public funding uh, in a yeah, charter that's school. that's I'm worried about. Uh, but which, private, private education, Catholic schools, uh, other parochial schools do quite well, but uh, they're mostly self-funded. And they're... Uh, primarily for those parents who can afford to send their children to private schools. In your mind, what's the difference in a, a charter school, a traditional charter school, and a magnet school or a school that's established for, let's just say, science and technology yeah. in the upper grades? Well, what's, the, what's the difference? Well, I don't know. 
It's, it varies from state to state. And um, charter schools seem to be doing well in some places. Uh, and there's great advocacy, advocacy for that in a city like New York City or in Chicago mm -hmm. because they have so many students. And uh, many of them come from, from poor families and poor, poor economic background. Those probably work better than if you tried to insert one into, uh, let's say, a county system that's already hard-pressed for students. And if you had a, uh, in a poor Kentucky county, if you had a charter school that also was, was able to get public funding, then that's really going to uh, make things worse for the public schools. Well, we're recording this uh, podcast on uh, April 4th. Happens to be the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther yeah. King's assassination. Um, but it also is the day following a raucous uh, General Assembly and <laughs> school teachers over in Frankfurt the yeah. last few days. Thousands were there on uh, Monday of this week. Uh, you last see week also. Uh, last week, and you see what's happening uh, today in Oklahoma City. They're still. The Oklahoma school teachers are still, and I'll bet you there's probably some Kentucky teachers out there too supporting them. They're 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 getting a lot of support. So uh, it, it sort of begs the question with uh, the the history that you just gave us, and uh, and I think you've already concluded that you're not sure it's going to get any better anytime soon, or something to those. Well, uh, not until uh, there's more public funding. Uh, I know there's a lot of issues in our legislature and, and uh, uh, with our governor uh, uh, and things they have to contend with, interest groups and, and uh, the public, and, and uh, they should be aware that uh, uh, the teachers in Kentucky, uh, uh, I think, because I'm an ex-teacher, I'm a, I'm a retired teacher, I'm with them all the way, and my... Uh, my retirement comes through the, the uh, retirement system of, of state teachers. Kentucky uh, Teachers yeah. Retirement Although System. Although we also at Eastern paid so Social yeah. Security, so we also have that automatically. But uh, Well, what, what is the, I mean, if, if you look now, uh, and we're talking about on a, on a global scale, if you will, or from the 50,000-foot uh, level, um, you've got these huge problems in the state like the pension uh, problem. You've got other uh, costs that are uh, going up every single day. Uh, demands on uh, the General Assembly or the governor or someone to raise the necessary funds to fund education. Um, wh where, where is it going to lead? How, how many, I mean, quite, quite honestly, this was, in my observation, sort of a incremental if if best on what was cobbled together at the final hour uh i think there are only 17 new areas that are going to be taxed uh we already hear uh, some progressives uh say that that's not even going to come anywhere near uh, what is needed yeah. to sustain uh education um what 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 does the future? I mean, if you were if you were challenged, uh, God bless him, if Tom Clark were, were alive today, and said, uh, Bill Ellis, uh, I, I want you to 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 write an article uh, looking forward. What what would you what would you write? Well, one thing that that's must change is uh, 
the tax structure of Kentucky has to be uh, changed. We have to we have to tax services, and you will notice that that services for uh, law and hospitals and other services were left out of this these increases. That's got to come. We uh, we're going to have to pay uh, more taxes. Uh, people, you know, everybody complains about taxes. The fact is that that uh, we just don't have enough tax money, and you've got to find resources to fund all of these things. We have a tremendous drug problem in Kentucky, and that's got to be funded. And people are dying every day from overdoses, and that's that's something that's. Uh, Terrible. It but but all what about if uh, if somebody responds to you uh, on that statement about increasing taxes? That uh, the taxes that, that were at least passed this time, or even even uh, ones that might be taken up in the future, are regressive in the fact that they tax uh, poor people more than oh, yeah. they tax well, the people who are uh, can afford to pay more taxes. Yeah, that's true. We do need to change this tax structure so that. Uh, Wealthier people pay their fair share. There's, a, a, of course, a movement of people uh, led by the, uh, how do you pronounce it, the Koch brothers. Uh, and they have organizations that uh, work all over the country, including in Kentucky, to keep taxes as low as possible. And that's very fine for the wealthy, but uh, it's not really fair for, for poorer people. I told somebody the other day they passed a, a you now would have to pay a sales tax for what is it uh, getting your dog uh, yeah, groomed or, groomed or spayed yeah. or neutered or yeah and, right uh, I told him I said thank God I don't have a dog <laughs> but yeah. other people have dogs, oh sure they and do. I'm sure they're bristling at the fact that they're going to have to pay a sales tax yeah. on these services now. yeah uh, before but we uh, that's taxing uh, whenever you have a sales tax it automatically hurts poorer people yeah because they have certain things that they have to buy. And I'm sure you remember uh, years ago when the sales tax was first implemented, mm -hmm. uh, it was finally taken off of food at the grocery store mm -hmm. and off of uh, prescription drugs. And uh, that took a big battle because you're cutting out a, you know, a large chunk of the sales tax. But uh, Before we talk about yeah. something a little bit more uh, 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 humorous, uh, Urban Cobb, uh, let me ask you about your interest in, in a book... Uh, that you wrote oh, on the on the Bingham family, yeah. Robert Worth Bingham and the Southern Mystique from the Old South to the New South and beyond. There were a bunch of books written by uh, about the Binghams in the 1980s, uh, when the Courier Journal uh, was uh, selling, being sold, and uh, the Bingham family uh, was uh, there was a lot of controversy in Louisville about this. Uh, people either loved the Binghams or they hated the Binghams because of their wealth and their influence. They were a very influential family. And I interviewed Robert Worth uh, Bingham's son, Barry Bingham, uh, on two occasions. And uh, other people who worked for the Courier. Uh, and it, uh, it was a real uh, monumental uh, task to get to the, the crux of the matter. First of all, did Robert Worth Bingham murder his second wife. And a lot of work was done by uh, uh, people on that subject. Uh, an entire, actually two entire books were written about did he murder his second wife. Mary Lily Keenan Flagler Bingham. She married uh, Flagler who was one of the wealthiest men in America and who developed Florida, uh, the Florida East Coast Railroad and built yeah. uh, a, a great mansion for her. And uh, 
there was always the, the implication that uh, Robert Worth Bingham had murdered her uh, at, at their, uh, their house in Louisville. I don't think he did, and other people don't think that he did. She died from a heart attack. She was an alcoholic. And uh, back when I was writing this book, in the, uh, the book came out uh, in 98, I think it was. 97. 97. Yeah. Uh, I was teaching full time and had, had two uh, children uh, going to college or about to go to college, so life was busy. Uh, and uh, there were people that uh, were involved in this. I remember calling uh, one of Mary Lilly's uh, Keenan relatives. The Keenans are still a very wealthy family. You may now, are these them. the Keenans of North Carolina? Yeah, North Carolina. And uh, uh, her uh, brother was second only to uh, John uh, to uh, in Standard Oil. Very, very wealthy family. Mm -hmm. And I called one of her uh, nephews, I guess it would have been, or grandnephews, mm -hmm. uh, because he'd made a statement, and he said that they were going to uh, uh, do a uh, post-mortem autopsy to see if she had been poisoned with something, mm -hmm. and that never happened. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, there was a word that they were um, uh, going to make a, a, a TV movie about it, <laughs> of all things, in yeah. which the implication was that Robert Worth Bingham had murdered, yeah. murdered her, and that never happened. Yeah. Well, so so his um, his life with the Binghams and with the newspaper empire and all of that was something that, what's the Southern mystique about it? Well, he, he came from a, uh, North Carolina and had a uh, uh, very Southern background. His father was a Confederate veteran. Uh, his father built a, uh, the Bingham School, which was at two different locations, but it was kind of a, a prototypical Southern boys school, military school. And Bingham grew up in that atmosphere and uh, got a law degree and came to Louisville. And uh, Louisville is very much a border city. And uh, like northern Kentucky, it's, it has some Midwestern qualities about it. So he was trying to uh, live in an atmosphere like that. He was very active in uh, the 20s and trying to get uh, farm cooperatives started and was quite successful for a while, and then the Depression hit, and then, of course, the federal government eventually developed farm cooperative programs uh, at a federal level. And, uh, but he was doing, doing it something that was uh, very necessary in trying to help the state. He was a, a pretty solidly a Democrat, except uh, he quite often ran a, up against uh, some people he didn't like. He was not very uh, happy with uh, Happy Chandler, as governor, they kind of uh, ran at cross purposes for a while. But he's a very active man in national politics, and then became ambassador to uh, Great Britain, the court of St. James, and was uh, um, uh, died in, I think, 37, after the new king came in, and he was uh, uh, very anti-Nazi, anti-fascism, Quite unlike uh, Joe Kennedy. Kennedy, Joe Kennedy was uh, uh, not a very good ambassador, and he certainly leaned toward uh, totalitarianism in some ways. Um, that brings us to um, an entirely different 
book, um, just from the, the, the humor standpoint of the biography, when did you first learn of Irvin S. Cobb, and, and, and is this something that somebody suggested that you delve into, or is oh, this? Oh, I've uh, heard of him for years. Yeah. And, uh, hadn't read much about him. I'd see quotes, you know, Irvin S. Cobb said this, uh, such as, I'd rather be an orphan in Kentucky than twins from any other <laughs> place. And uh, there'd be quotations in other books. Yeah. And like I say, a lot of the things I wrote about were just uh, um, things that I was interested in because of uh, some way, something I was teaching. I, of course, interested in education. Mm -hmm. I got interested in the Binghams because uh, they were such a, an influential uh, family all the way through my early life into the 1980s until they sold the, the, uh, the paper. And there was a lot of controversy within the family about uh, uh, between Sally Bingham and her brother, and, and it, uh, it was in the press all the time. It was during a time when, uh, during a time when newspapers were, of course, beginning to go through what they've become today, uh, which is uh, they're all owned by big corporations. There are no real independent newspapers except in a, a few places, and, and uh, they're corporate-run, and, and they're, uh, they're, they're in no way what they used to be. Certainly not in the days of Urban Cobb before radio and television and electronic media. And he learned to write for what were called space rates. And that meant the more you write, the more you make. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, newspapers, uh, especially in New York, when there were, I don't know, maybe a dozen papers, uh, the big ones and then the, the smaller newspapers, the Times and the Sun and, and those newspapers, they would uh, have several issues a day uh, of newspapers. And uh, when you got up in the morning, there'd be a newspaper on your doorstep and there would be an afternoon paper and then there'd be an evening paper, at least three issues, sometimes more than that. But now, you know, there's one paper and then... If one. <laughs> uh, in the Lexington paper, you don't know the ball scores until the following day because the the game ended too too soon for the or too late for the, the issue to come. Mm -hmm. Was he, um, uh, of course, a native of uh, Paducah? Yeah, he um, grew up in Paducah. His uh, 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 in the Purchase area, which is uh, many people think is the most southern part of Kentucky, and mm -hmm. uh, many people think of Central Kentucky as being very southern. I don't think it is, and some people have. Uh, uh, what I think of as a kind of a fakey southern accent. <laughs> but you get down in western Kentucky, Hopkinsville, and then over toward the Purchase, and yeah. people do have, well, you're from Barron County. Yeah. People well, do have a more or less southern accent. There is some uh, southern accent. Uh, I, always, I grew up uh, thinking of uh, Glasgow and Barron County as south-central Kentucky, yeah. which it is. I mean, yeah. if you look at the map, uh, it always... Um, uh, bothers some of us uh, when people refer to Glasgow or Bowling Green as Western Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> that means they haven't been uh, uh, south of, yeah. of uh, or west of uh, Bowling Green. The so you said Southern. Uh, don't you always uh, e even Paducah? Some people say you know that's that's West Kentucky, but you know Western Kentucky is down in the Purchase and yeah. and down to Fulton and Benton and yeah. and well uh, that area was uh, uh, in 
But when the Civil War started, there were more soldiers, many more soldiers mm -hmm. from that area who went into the Confederate forces than in mm -hmm. central Kentucky, mm -hmm. for example. And two and a half times or more uh, men fought for the Union than for the mm -hmm. South. But after the Civil War, Kentucky in many ways became more Southern. And that's been written about by quite a few people uh, politically because so many of the, the uh, leaders in the state were ex-Confederate soldiers. And that's why, again, you see more Confederate monuments. I think there's only one Union soldier monument. I think in the you're state. right. Yeah. And I don't even know, I can't even remember where that is right now. But, uh, uh, but if you take uh, even Central Kentucky, uh, was more pro Union than pro Southern. And certainly Louisville was. What took uh, Irvin Cobb um, out of uh, Kentucky or out of Paducah? Well, he, he was. Uh, encouraged to do this by his wife and he was also a very uh, ambitious person if you look in the middle of the book there's uh, pictures of mm -hmm. him as a young managing editor of the Paducah paper and he was uh, there's a picture of him uh, where is that yeah here it is yeah uh -huh. uh, and look in his right hand what do you see a sword. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and a mustache. Yeah, uh, the um, and very thin. The the note says Cobb and his associates at the Paducah paper, 1896. 19-year-old Cobb is seated uh, holding a sword. Henry Thompson, part owner of the paper, is seated on the right with the staff in the background. Now, that's an old old uh, photograph, of course, taken with an explosive yeah, flash. Yeah. And uh, all men, all white, all with hats on inside the the newspaper office, yeah. and now there's one that doesn't have a hat on, and a great big office with windows. Um, what 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 do you think was the sword there? Just uh, as something that you like, you'd have a cane with you or something, or what? what? Oh, what's he holding there? Yeah. No, that's a sword. Well, no, I said, well, why why the sword? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know. Yeah. He he would uh, back in those days, uh, or when he wrote his memoirs, he talked about being. Uh, uh, I think tongue-in-cheek, very uh, manly. And, of course, if you see that picture, he's just yeah. a kid yeah. with yeah. a mustache. Yeah. And he's holding that sword, probably, which was kind of like a prop yeah. in the office. <laughs> but that area was very uh, much more southern than anything, uh -huh. than any other part uh -huh. of the state. And that influenced him. And then he goes off to New York City, and uh, uh, that's a much different in environment. Yeah. Well, he must have been uh, fun to be around. Uh, oh, he would have been. Yeah, w with all of his quips. Well, if you and read uh, around 1900, uh, uh, there were several Kentucky authors who were nationally known. When I see this, piques my interest because uh, there's another picture right below the newspaper office picture, and it reads uh, Cobb and Fella Paducan George Goodman. That's my last name at the Pendennis Club in Louisville in 1942. I better look into that. Yeah. That might be a long lost relative. Might <laughs> have left me some of, humor in his he was will. Head of, head of one of the uh, federal programs in Kentucky. Oh, okay, all right. Well, well, the New Deal program. To my knowledge, we didn't have any relatives in McCracken, but that's that's okay. Uh, Bill. Um, no, he wasn't from uh, McCracken County. I forgot where he was from. That Goodman. Oh, that Goodman. Yeah, okay. Sure. Um, as you um, uh, you just. We, we didn't record this, but uh, I'm going to ask you that you said this is your, your the last book, although you still write uh, quite a lot for 
Kentucky, Kentucky Monthly, Monthly uh, Magazine and, that and, takes a lot and of other effort, pieces. Uh, yeah. As I get older, it takes more and more effort. Do you still enjoy the, the writing enjoy, and the research? Yeah, and done, uh, Of course, I like humor, and that's in this uh, article. And yeah. I'll do some more humor articles. But uh, I would like to do if uh, more articles about Kentucky humor, which I might, you know... Uh, Send to you all, yeah. Here, to humanity, yeah. For for the uh, for the magazine, yeah. uh, this uh, by the way, uh, the article that Bill's referring to is in the April, uh, twenty eighteen yeah. Kentucky Monthly, and and uh, it's about time they got around to uh, putting your book in there since it came out last <laughs> fall, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, so uh, well, there's thanks, a thanks. Uh, Steve Flaherty is a uh, a friend of both of ours and yeah. and, a, and a writer, and he does reviews for. Uh, Kentucky Monthly, and then your article is opposite that, uh, past tense, present tense, the humor abounds, and you will continue to, to do some work for Kentucky Monthly. And I may do uh, oh, even articles about humor. Uh, lengthy, you know, more or less, more or less scholarly type yeah. things. But, uh, Why don't you end up with, uh, with a bit of humor? Um, I won't ask you to uh, to tell the uh, Icelandic uh, joke. I'm not well, sure what that, oldest, that. I'm not sure that would. Uh... One of the oldest jokes in there is. Uh, well, let me read it uh, because this is a Kentucky. Uh, I'll find it for you, real quick. Joke that people have heard. We were just on but that it page. Also, uh, is filtered through. There, uh, uh, I'll find it. Yeah, there it is. An Irishman. John uh, John B. King, K-E-A-N-E, he died in 2002. He was a, an Irish novelist, playwright, and he wrote about uh, a, a city man, a gentleman who's lost, and he comes upon a, a man seated upon a milestone, and this is in Ireland. And the gentleman asked about the location of a small village. When the local man said he, he didn't know of any such place or any of these other local villages, the, Traveler became exasperated. Eventually, he lost, the uh, man completely lost his temper. He said, what a fool, <laughs> what an ass, what a lout. And the man who's sitting on the milestone says, fool, yes, uh, ass, yes, <laughs> lout, yes, but lost, no. <laughs> and how many times have you heard yeah. someone tell the joke, the same joke in Kentucky, and the city man is driving through some place, yeah. and he asks her, where's Waddy, or where's... Yeah. And the local man says, I don't know. Yeah. And the uh, other man says something, and then the man says, what? <laughs> At least I ain't lost. <laughs> yeah. At least I know joke. where I am. And it's, it's amazing how many... Uh, how much humor like that is uh, derivative, and it just kind of changes over the yeah. years. And there's, there's the joke about... Uh, uh, and it's it's got many versions. I don't know how many versions of uh, the story of a, uh, a man who uh, and his some of his cohorts. They're driving along, and they they see this. The southern version or the Kentucky version is they're driving their car, yeah. their automobile, and they see a hog going down the road, and they decide uh, we can't let that go away. So we're going to put him in the car. Well, where do you put the hog in the car? Well, they put him in the back seat. And uh, up a, then they finally see a police car or the sheriff's car. This could be in Barron County. <laughs> so they decide to put a coat around the, the hog and a hat on its head. And the sheriff stops them. 
And he comes over to look in the car. Well, he knows who these people are. So he says, uh, if it was Shelby County, it'd be the Ellis boys. <laughs> and if it was in Barron County, it'd be the Goodman yeah. boys. And he says, I thought I knew all the Goodman boys. <laughs> and said, where are you headed? And uh, Bill Goodman says, well, we're going home. He's, and the sheriff says, I know what you're out for. You're out trying to find moonshine. He said, now, get on home. He said, who's that in the back seat there in the middle? And somebody punches the hog and it goes, oink. <laughs> And of course the sheriff is deaf, like yeah. me, has a hearing aid. And uh, he kind of shakes his head and he goes back and gets in the car with the deputy and the, the Goodman boys drive off. And he says, uh, the deputy says, what's that all about? And the sheriff says, I thought I knew all the Goodman boys, but that oink Goodman is the ugliest of the whole bunch. <laughs> loyal Jones, no. you know Loyal. Sure I do. He heard that same story told by uh, some people from Tibet. You know, they, oh my goodness! Korea College has yeah. connections with uh, yeah, Tibet yeah. and other countries. Uh -huh. And uh, this man, his story was that uh, they uh, saw this hog, they picked it up, uh, and in Tibet, uh, Steve Wren went there several years ago. You you go from one checkpoint to another, mm -hmm. and the the uh, Chinese police uh, time you so that you won't be into any trouble. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they come up to, a, they go to go through a checkpoint, and they've got this hog seated between them in the pickup <laughs> truck. So they think, how are we going to do this? So they go by a Chinese base, and there's uh, uniforms hanging on, a, on a t washing out. So they, they get a hat, and they get a, a coat with an officer's emblem on yeah. it, and they put it on the hog. They go drive, and they go to the checkpoint, and the arm comes down, the guard yeah. comes out. It's getting yeah. dark. And, same thing, they punch the hog, the hog goes oink, <laughs> and the guard uh, lets them through, raises the guard, they go through. He goes back in the guardhouse, and the, the other guard says, what was that all about? He says, that was the ugliest officer I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> well, so the, it's the same story. Whether it's in Kentucky or in Tibet. Uh, Bill, thanks a lot for joining You're us. Uh, appreciate you stopping by. We'll have to do this again. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud.